Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Rock in a Hard Place. I'm your host, Thomas Hale. This week, I'm joined by Hugh Brown. Hugh is an Australian documentary photographer focused primarily on mining. He has been involved with the mining industry, both large-scale and small-scale, for most of his working life. He has worked across the witness firsthand almost every aspect of the mining value chain, giving him a unique capacity to compare and contrast some of the most topical issues around both sectors. Hugh has worked in over 30 countries and prior to becoming a photographer, worked as a management consultant specializing in corporate strategy, again, mostly with large-scale mining companies. In November 2022, Hugh released his eighth large-format coffee table book. Another such book, his ninth, will be launched in around July 2023. Hugh has experienced and photographed artisanal mining around the world and knows the sector as well as almost anyone going around. He has literally lived, worked, breathed, and suffered with the miners in his efforts to drive a better deal for them while simultaneously facilitating greater understanding of the issues facing them by the people in the world's richest countries. Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Looking forward to having this really important conversation. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Appreciate it. So I'd like to start off our chat by learning a little bit more about your journey into photographic documentary work. When did you start getting involved in photography and what led you to photographing the mining sector specifically? I'd been working in firstly corporate taxation and then corporate strategy after that in in Victoria and Australia and I'd gotten a bit bored with the consulting side of things and I took a trip up to Australia's far northwest and I had this sort of uneasy feeling I'd get sucked back into this vortex of my old job and so while I was up there I'd, I'd just go and see as much as I could and I'm talking some weekends I'd travel two and a half thousand kilometres just to see stuff and I'd never really been interested in photography to that point, but each time I took the camera along and my background in consulting and and before that had been sort of mainly with the mining sector and I sort of decided to give photography a crack. I I wasn't really sure that that was what I wanted to do and I'd never thought of being a photographer, but I decided to give it a crack and I started sort of working mainly with the mining sector. They gave me some of my sort of first work. And I was, to be honest, I was pretty terrible as a photographer back then. And it's a bit embarrassing to sort of see some of my work, but some of those clients are still clients to this day. And that's, you know, that's been substantial length of time now. So let's talk about the power of photography and the work that you're doing to help tell stories about many of the challenges and opportunities surrounding mining communities, specifically these artisanal and small scale mining communities. Everyone out there has seen images of children mining for cobalt, which are unfortunately often used for political purposes here in the United States and abroad. How does your photograph work tap into human nature and try to explore the real issues around ASM and the need to improve the lives of so many people that are dependent on these mineral resources? Yeah, look, it's a, there's a really interesting sort of opening question there because you know, you look back in the history of photography and there's been a debate over the years between those that don't caption their images and those that do. For me, photographs are an entree. They're a door to a discussion. But without context, without information wrapping around them, they're largely meaningless because things can be staged and 
all of that sort of stuff. So what I try to do with my work is I put the photos up as I've taken them. I'm, I'm aiming for, you know, to show or to capture the essence of what I see when I'm out on location. And then I think it's really important to wrap context in the form of captions, whatever else. I've been studying this topic now for 17 years, if you go back to 2006. And there's a huge amount of learning that I've acquired in that time. It's taken me 17 years to acquire that learning. So if I can assist people to learn more quickly, then that's got to be beneficial in terms of how we deal with the sector going forward. So there's been a lot of conversation here in the United States in the online and media, as well as government forums about the artisanal small-scale mining sector and the need to remove a lot of these supply chains from companies from supporting these cobalt and other commodity markets. You speak often about not dehumanizing these people. What should we do then about artisanal small-scale mining? What is the best route forward when we're trying to improve these social and environmental standards around where we source our metals? The best way forward at the moment is for us to butt right out. If you look at the history of Europe, if you look at the history of the United States in the dealing with the countries in which most of these miners come from, you know, essentially artisanal miners come from third world countries. So the global south, if you want to call it that. If you look back at the history of the US, Europe, in places like Africa, it is absolutely atrocious. This last week, I've been looking at the decolonization history of the Congo going back to about 1960. The US was actively involved in the assassination of two democratically elected presidents. We have got zero standing, zero credibility to be poking our noses in anywhere on the basis that we say that we're wanting to help the lives of these people. And if you look at the primary model that's being used at the moment to improve the lives of these people around the world, and that's the due diligence guidance, you're talking about Dodd-Frank, or you look at the EU CARA legislation and, and whatever else, it's all, a lot of that's wraps around the due diligence guidance sort of frameworks that have been developed by the OECD. You've got to say, what are the motives of those agencies putting that model forward? Because I look at that model and I say it doesn't make sense. You know, that model is essentially based around putting pressure on downstream buyers and companies to change their purchasing habits or to alter their purchasing habits to supposedly improve the lives of these miners. But you look at the fact that, you know, the OECD's 38 of the richest countries on the planet, and we're trying to tell the same countries going back to colonisation days where we've raped and pillaged those regions that we now care for them. It carries absolutely no weight. So the best thing we can do at the moment is stay out of those things, stay out of those places. The other component to it is that we're trying to impose our values, which we're in a completely different context to what these miners are. And when you pair things back, these people are sacrificing the life that they could be living now for the prospect of a better life. So they're, they're working in unsafe conditions, they're doing incredibly hard work, and they're doing it on the basis that if they make those sacrifices now, their families and their children may have better lives going forward. I've been working recently in a first world location in a place where the working conditions are every bit as dangerous as the most dangerous people that I've photographed in an artisanal mining context. And when you interview those same people, and I'm talking people in a first world context earning good money, they're all doing that work because they want to make better lives for themselves and their families. And California, Canada, Australia are all built on the backs of artisanal miners. And it's a bit rich for us now to turn around and say to these same miners in other countries around the world that they can't do 
what we use to build our own countries on. So when you hear these conversations, though, about removing some of these supply chains and the issues around artisanal mining, I mean, what can we do or what can we say? Or should you, as you said, maybe we shouldn't be saying anything at all, because I think one of the concerns that's often brought up here in the United States is, of course, Chinese influence in a lot of these different countries. And we can discuss and debate that all day long. But from a defense perspective, it seems to be that's one of the primary motivations, as well as others that you've rightfully mentioned, of why to engage and involve in these countries. So what should the public be thinking about here in the United States or engaging in when we're looking at where we get our materials from and our our metals from? What role can we play, I guess, as a consumer, as people that want to be engaged voters in our own governments? I think it's fundamental to understand that our only reason for interest in places like the Congo, Ghana, other countries is about their minerals. We want what they have. If they didn't have minerals, we would not care or less about them. And so it's my strong belief that our interest and the causes that we promote, you know, namely due diligence guidance, are all about using those as levers to get access to what these guys have in preference to the, you know, because we argue that our work practices and all those sort of things are better than, say, the Chinese. And the approach is disingenuous. And the best thing that we can do is engage with these people as human beings and ask them what they want and not have us step in from the outside and try to tell them what they need. How have the communities that you've engaged with when you've traveled viewed these conversations? How aware they are of some of these different debates and discussions and what do they think about the way that Americans or Australians or Canadians or people in the UK and European Union engage with them on issues around critical minerals? To a large extent, they don't really understand. The one thing they do understand, though, is that Quite often, photographers or journalists will go in and they try to write the worst case scenario about the places in which they're working. So they're well attuned to that. You know, when I go into these places, I leave my cameras back in the hotel or the car. And if it takes me three days, two weeks, three weeks to build confidence and trust that I'm not there to dump on them, then that's what it takes. But they're certainly attuned to that. The other thing they're attuned to, of course, is the gold price. And they've got their phones and all that sort of stuff. And technology brings these locations a lot closer to us than perhaps many of us realize. So when people are wanting to learn a little bit more about artisanal and small-scale mining, what should people be listening to or know about this sector? And is there a myth or several myths that need to be busted when the public hears about artisanal mining and small-scale mining? Yeah, the best way to learn about it is to go there. Unfortunately, we've got so many of the policymakers and people making decisions in relation to these people have never seen an artisanal miner. They've only read about them in The Guardian or seen some sensational stuff on CNN or in The New York Times. They've, they've never actually been there. And when you go there, like I'm not talking about going for 10 minutes or half a day, you need to spend weeks or months and then you need to go and see a wide cross-section of these these people around the world to understand the commonality and then to understand the nuance. And there's a lot of nuance and there's a huge amount of nuance in, and there's a lot of commonality as well. You can't understand that without being on the ground for substantial lengths of time. The second thing is that these people that haven't been to these places need to step out of the decision-making process in favour of those that, that have had that experience on the ground. Are there any myths that you hear a lot in the news or people come to you and ask you about that you'd like to dispel or, or kind of talk to people about, about artisanal mining? There's a million of them. You know, one of them might be that there's a death around every corner. That's not the case. I mean, you've got 45 million of these workers roughly around the world mining directly as artisanal miners. 
when you factor the the number in the 45 million number in and then the number of deaths that occur against that number it's really quite low and the thing is when you're in more dangerous circumstances and you're taking more risk you take more care and one of the challenges with large-scale mining around the world there's seven million of those is that it's become so policy and proceduralized that people rely on the systems to keep them safe and that's when you're most at risk it's like crossing the road and there's a little green man flashing that you can cross the road and you've sort of got your headphones on and you're singing to yourself as you cross the road and you don't look what's coming around the corner and there's a drunk driver i mean the reality is you need to take responsibility for your own action. That's where these people are fantastic. The second thing is that if you look at you know this issue of child labour, child mining, to a large extent in Africa, in a place like Africa, kids are like the superannuation for their parents. Many parents have large families and they rely on that fact because the kids are going to provide for them when they're when they're older. But the corollary of that is that when the kids are young, they've got to start providing for themselves and helping the family unit from a fairly early age. And so family units move around, kids assist families, and that can be in a mining context, it can be in the fields, it can be in the farms or can even be in the village. And we have child labour in the first world, but we just call it by a different name. We've got kids working in McDonald's, we've got kids working at Walmart, we've got kids working wherever else. We just like to think we're a bit more fancy. And in reality, they're, they're all working. No, that's a very important point. I think a very interesting point. I know that here in the United States, there were several instances, I think, over the last couple months of some child labor being found out here in the United States and some of these warehouse facilities and that being brought to the attention of the media here in the U.S. And so, as you've said and you brought up earlier in the conversation, it's kind of hypocritical for us to make and say how other people should be living their lives when there's all these different issues and things that we've done in the past, especially to a lot of these other countries. The other thing, Tom, there too, is that you look at a place like the Congo where this issue of child labour has really been drummed up. There's a few things that are really important in the context of that discussion. The cobalt miners in the Congo are about 150,000 people out of a global artisanal mining population of about 45 million. So you've got to ask the question, why are we focused on a, an artisanal mining population of 150,000 out of 45 million when India's got an artisanal mining population of 15 million, China's got 7 million? Here's some theories, or more than theories. The Congo accounts for 70% of the global cobalt production. It's a pinch point in the EV supply chain. You've got to look at who benefits from putting the squeeze on Congolese cobalt. Oil and gas industry, you've got countries that are producing cobalt independently of the Congo that might be wanting to get projects up. And then you've also got, this is what I was coming back to earlier, you've also got the US involvement in there again, and you've got a a more pro-US president than Kabila was in the Congo previously. And I think there's a fairly strong case to be mounted that the US are using the kids in the Congo, the human rights issues as a squeeze to try and get the new president or Shisekedi to take the cobalt concessions off the Chinese. It blows my mind that media, that academia, none of them are picking up on this. And, you know, I'm a photographer, take a few photos, and yet I can sort of see through a lot of this stuff. And most of the people that should be commenting on this are nowhere to be seen. You and I spoke briefly about this, but I'd like to get some of your thoughts on the podcast about the book Cobalt Red and him coming on Joe Rogan and having these conversations about cobalt. You've seen several committees in the U.S. and the National Resources Committee and various issues talking about child labor in the Congo. And then just last week, 
one of the kind of star childs, this Idaho cobalt mine that was supposed to open up has now stopped construction because of inflation, but also cobalt prices with a lot of these issues. How do these conversations and cobalt rid impacts on these things? And what were your thoughts around that book and some of the conversations that came out afterwards? And how has that helped or hindered a lot of these kind of conversations with artisanal miners? So first thing is, there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? So somehow, Kara, who appeared out of nowhere in the context of artisanal mining, suddenly is found on Rogan, New York Times, CNN, he's a bestseller on Amazon. That sort of publicity isn't generated organically over such a short period of time. So the question is, who was backing him? Then you look at who's been promoting his stuff, CNN, New York Times. If you really want to sort of drive deeper, like some people would argue they're strongly affiliated with the intelligence community in the US. So why might they be doing this? The second thing is that Kara conveyed the experiences he had. He seemed to convey them in a heartfelt way, but was very, very weak on solutions. Like he was pushing the view that the downstream buyers needed to take more of a role in solving the problems or the challenges that he'd seen in the Congo. And then he went into sort of some of the politics around, you know, the emergence of Shisaketi. But the problem is, it's overly dramatized. It doesn't recognize a lot of the nuance. And then he's just disappeared. Like we don't, I mean, I haven't heard of him recently anywhere and the book just got a lot of attention and then just disappeared. So the question is who's supporting him and what was their motive? And that's where I come back. And I think I asked the question, I suppose is a better way of putting it. Is there some sort of connection between that book that was written and the objectives of the US intelligence community and the the, the US critical minerals objectives to try and get some of those cobalt concessions off the Chinese. Very, very interesting. So this wraps up part one of my conversation with Hugh Brown. Join us for part two as we discuss the lessons learned about artisanal small-scale mining and large-scale mining from Hugh's extensive traveling experience and more about the human impacts he sees on the ground from mining. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website at Mineral Choices for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out to me. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. We'll see you next time.